There's a lot more to New York City than meets the eye, but a lot of us are too consumed looking at our smartphones to take notice of it. Not Stanley Greenberg, however. He's a Brooklyn-based photographer with a lifelong curiosity about urban infrastructure. Stanley's published four books, including Invisible New York, The Hidden Infrastructure of the City, and Waterworks, A Photographic Journey Through New York's Hidden Water System. His latest project is called Codex New York, Typologies of the City. Stanley Greenberg, welcome to Cityscape. Thanks for having me. So you live in Brooklyn now. Are you native to New York? Yes, I am. I actually was born a few blocks from where I live now, although really? I made a big circle around Brooklyn and Manhattan. I would imagine Manhattan. you've seen a lot of change in Brooklyn over the years. Yes. When I grew up in Brooklyn, nobody wanted to stay. Now everybody wants to be there. So how would you say growing up in New York City has inspired you as a photographer? Well, how hasn't it? <laughs> I always, I guess from a fairly early age, I spent enough time seeing other parts of the city that I, I knew there was so much else there. Um, my parents took me to museums a lot, and I worked in the Botanic Garden and the Brooklyn Museum. And then in high school, I went, I took the subway to Manhattan every day, and that kind of opened up everything. And then all of a sudden, you thought, oh, I can go anywhere by train and see anything in the city. When did you first pick up a camera? I was pretty young. My father was a high school art teacher, so I had a camera, and there was a tiny little bathroom in the basement of our house that we turned into a dark room with no ventilation, of course. So I was probably probably five or six, and there's actually a picture of me when I was maybe three sitting in a chair in our backyard with boxes of film in my lap. Huh. So it's been a while. But you didn't set out to do photography professionally initially. No, not at all. I was interested interested in environmental studies and thought I would be some kind of um, ecologist or environmental activist when I was in college. And then switched to art history, and I was also involved in student politics a lot. I did an internship working for Congresswoman Liz Holtzman and then got involved in politics and then went to grad school for public administration. So I came back thinking, well, maybe I can work at cultural affairs or in a museum. And that almost didn't happen. But I worked in city government through the 80s. What inspired you to return to photography? Well, when I was in grad school, I was at Syracuse. And there's a great place there called Lightwork. And I ended up spending much more time at Lightwork and photographing than doing graduate school. Um, and I thought, this is what I really want to do, but how do I do that and make a living? Because I wasn't interested in commercial photography or even, I mean, I was somewhat interested in photojournalism, but didn't think it was the right thing for me. So I thought, well, okay, I'm going to go into government work and keep this in mind, you know, and not, not make a career out of government work. And just when I started working, um, my father had a brain aneurysm and died when he was 51. And he had been planning to retire to go back to being a painter. And I thought, okay, that's my signal to not wait too long. So I worked in city government for about eight years and accumulated about six months of vacation time. And I thought, this is, this is the time to stop. So that was 1988. And what did you set your sights on in terms of 
looking through the lens at that time? I had no idea. No idea? No. I mean, I, I knew I was interested in architecture and cities and engineering and things like that, but I really had no idea. And I, I also, I'm a woodworker, so I was doing picture framing and installations for galleries, and that was kind of bringing me a little bit closer to the art world. And I had a studio in Dumbo when it was affordable, and I could see the Navy Yard from there. And I thought, well, that might be an interesting place to photograph. And I made some calls and wrote to a few, few people and surprisingly easily got access. And I spent a few days photographing there. And I thought, wow, there's all these places all over the city that people have heard of, like the Navy Yard, or places they haven't even heard of that are either important places in the city or essential for the existence of the city. And nobody knows what they look like. And I had seen a bunch of them when I worked. One of the city agencies I worked for was DEP, which oversees the water system. So I thought, maybe I'll try to photograph the bridges and the water system and the tunnels and the waterfront. And that's what evolved into Invisible New York. Looking at the city's hidden infrastructure, if you will. That's right, yeah. Now, you've also walked the routes of all of the city's water tunnels for a project, right? Well, that was a much more recent project. Um, I had been inside the new water tunnel several times in different places, in actually in the Bronx, Manhattan, Queens, and Brooklyn, um, and it goes to all those boroughs. And so, again, this is much later. After I had been on all the insides, I thought, well, what... What does this all look like from the outside? And what would somebody just walking down the street see that would tell them that there's water system here? So I mapped out where all the shafts were. And there, there are three main tunnels in the city, um, two from the early part of the 20th century and one almost finished. And they all have different kinds of structures on the sidewalk. And I knew where they all were, so I could walk from one to the next. And it was great because it took me to lots of parts of the city that I didn't know. And there there are still many places that I don't know. And I'm always looking for projects to take me out to other places. And what did you capture in those photographs for that project? Um, I photographed all of the... Well, the new tunnel has much more visible ventilation shafts. The older tunnels... Um, sometimes there's a structure, sometimes it's just a plate in the sidewalk, and you'd never know except if you knew where it was. And you mapped it all out so you knew where it was. I mapped it all out. I have a map with, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of city water sites. I'm sure DEP would prefer I not have that map, but yeah. I made it myself. So. <laughs> I was going to say, can you do a project like that largely under the radar without anyone noticing you taking these photographs and well, on the sidewalk, sure. I mean, there. I've been upstate to a lot of the system also. When I did the water book um, called Waterworks, I had permission from DEP, and they actually took me everywhere. Then they didn't want me to publish it. Then they backed down. Then they bought a few hundred copies. So it's kind of, you know, we love you, we hate you. So to get on actual restricted sites is much more difficult. It was hard enough in the 90s. Now it's it's almost impossible, depending on the site. There are a few places you can just go walking. Like you can walk around the Ashokan Reservoir 
um, even Kensico Reservoir in White Plains, not that far. And there are a few things here you can see, like um, the reservoir in Staten Island. But that was one of the things that attracted me to some of these walking projects. I don't need anyone's permission. I can just go walk. You walked every block in Manhattan, is that correct? Yes, that's right. That's what the new Which book Which led to this book. That's right, yeah. So what inspired you to walk every block in Manhattan? Well, it's funny. I, I The story I tell, which is true for the most part, is that I was I wanted to do a project about big empty spaces in Manhattan, places where buildings had been torn down or just had been empty for a long time, but wouldn't be always. And they provide an interesting viewpoint, and that view is not going to be there all the time. And I'd make little notes every time I'd come across one, but then I thought, well, the only way I'm going to find these is if I do a little bit more systematic walk. And I usually, up until then, I worked with a 4x5 view camera, which you put on a tripod and put a cloth over your head. So it's not the kind of camera you walk around with. So my plan was to take a small camera and make some maps and take some notes and then go back on early mornings on the weekends with the view camera. And I started at the battery, and within a few minutes, I realized this is a different project than I thought it was. And there are so many different pieces of the city, infrastructure, buildings, signs of different eras of city planning, what different bridges and tunnels do to neighborhoods, um, the grid and where there isn't a grid, so many different things that uh, there are, I guess, are different layers of the city. And I wanted to sort of take it apart and put it back together again. I guess the other story is I probably always wanted to walk every block of Manhattan in the back of my mind and just never really had a good reason to. So this was it. How long did it take you to walk every block in Manhattan? 31 days. I did one day a week. It was October through May 2012-13. One pair of shoes or more than one pair one of pair. shoes? Yeah. <laughs> what time would you typically go out for a walk? Um, I'd get out as early as I could and not have to fight uh, rush hour too much um, and then stay out as long as it was daylight. So you could potentially be out there for eight hours or more? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In the winter, less time because less light. But um, sure, I'd be out for a lot of time. What would you say you're primarily looking for? You're just going out for a walk, if you will. I know you were first looking for empty spaces, but right. then how did you decide to focus on what you're focusing on? And we'll talk about what's in the book because it's mm -hmm. categorized. Well, a few things. I mean, I always do a lot of research before a project, so I'd learn about a neighborhood before I went, and I thought, okay, are there any interesting buildings that I don't know here? Who lived in some of these buildings? What's the... Uh, the city planning history of that neighborhood. So I had a sort of inkling of what was ahead, but then, I mean, it, over a few the, over the first few days, I realized, okay, there are lots of things that are here that are going to be everywhere in the city. There are going to be playgrounds. There are going to be different kinds of infrastructure signage. Um, there are going to be there's going to be grid here and not grid there. So. I guess the only way to know is to do it. So I'm sure that by the time I was halfway through, I was thinking, oh, I probably should have been photographing these sort of things before. But one of the nice things about a digital camera is that 
it's so easy to take a lot of pictures, which provides problems later, that I went back and I, uh, more often than not, I had already photographed those things. So they were there. So you did return to certain spots. No, no, I'm saying when I went back and looked at the early gotcha. pictures, I realized I had photographed things I hadn't really thought about photographing yet. You referenced some of the categories in this book. You referenced non-grid, grid. Right. You have alleys, bridge, tunnel, track, buttresses, cemeteries, construction, geology, typography, parking lots, parking sheds. You reference playgrounds. You also have relics, sanitation, sky bridges, vacant spaces where it all began, and waterfront. That's right. And water system. And water system. Yeah. Manhattan doesn't look like Manhattan when you focus on many of these (laughs) places, especially the little streets and the alleys. Yeah. Yeah. Most of them are, are the oldest parts of the city, although there were a few uptown that were newer. Um, yeah, I mean, I really like those just because they they have survived for 300 years. You know, and they don't look the same, but the the arrangement is the same. Yeah, even when you focus on an alley in between buildings, mm-hmm. it just gives you a totally different image of yes. the city. Well, another thing I discovered working with this small camera is that so often what's interesting is behind a fence or even behind a wall or a sheet of plywood, but there was almost always some little hole that I could shoot through. So you're seeing what looks like an an open space, what is in reality something behind a fence or a wall. So, I mean, that's one of the ways camera lies. You, you're, you're having a different viewpoint in the photograph than you would be if you were standing there. What little street did you walk on that fascinated you the most? Well, Jumel Terrace is a pretty interesting spot. I don't know if you know it. It's, it's uptown. It's right near Morris Jumel Mansion. And there's a double row of, I can't even remember when, they look like mid-19th century wooden houses that are pretty much the same as the way they looked uh, over 150 years ago. Um, there was a big moving truck on the street, so that sort of ruined the the mood. But knowing what what, what happened in the house um, with Aaron Burr and and also knowing that a lot of Hamilton was written there, um, it was just a kind of interesting combination of different time periods all all thrown into one, which is what happens all over the city. The photographs of that street are in the chapter Little Streets, but they could also be in the chapter on Relics because they survive. There were a lot of overlap places where I had to choose, okay, is this a picture about the grid or is it a picture about a buttress or is it a picture about who knows what else? So, yeah, it was hard to categorize sometimes. And, And some of that is just about what works well as a sequence in a book. New York is constantly evolving. It's always amazing to stumble on a street like that where these structures still exist. Things are coming up. Things are coming down all the time. But yet you do have these spaces that somehow survive. Right, right. And the cemeteries, obviously, although so many of our city parks had been cemeteries. So those those have been changed, um, even though you'd think they might not. Washington Square Park, for instance. Washington Square. I think Union Square also Um, yeah. I mean, some of the other things I photographed just didn't work well in a book. Like, I photographed probably five different places that were de Kooning studio, um, but that would require too much text. Although he was a bit of an inspiration 
for the book, I I read his biography, and it turned out he used to wander around Manhattan at night to look at all the construction sites through the little holes that he could see them from. Um, and uh, there's one great painting of his from the black and white period called, called Excavation that made me think a lot about what I was doing. You've captured a number of construction sites, no shortage of construction sites in that's Manhattan. Right, that's right. Well, I did a whole book about contemporary architecture under construction a few years ago, so I didn't want to do too much of that, but it's, it's unavoidable here. Getting back to the cemeteries, what are among the cemeteries you captured? Well, there are the three Shirath Israel cemeteries um, that kind of trace the, the move uptown of, the, um, of that congregation. And the African burial ground right near City Hall, I think, is a really amazing site. Um, the one that people seem most surprised at is the um, Trinity Uptown Cemetery, which is, I guess, the biggest cemetery in Manhattan. Um, I also happened to be there. This was land that was owned by John James Audubon, and I happened to be there on his birthday. So that was kind of great, and that's one of the reasons that that picture is in the book. And there are a couple of funny little, I, I guess you can't really call them cemeteries, but there are only maybe three or four places in Manhattan where there's a single person buried. A or, single or person, really? Right. So there's Grant's tomb, of course, mm-hmm. which is Grant and his wife. Um, just down the hill from there, there's a little monument um, to a child, I think it's called the Amiable Child. Um, and then there's one in the park, I forget the name of the park, just west of the library on 7th Avenue South. Um, and then there's a kind of really funky doubleheader category. Um, there's a city tunnel number one shaft right near Madison Square that is also a tomb for one war hero. Hmm. So. And did you know where that was or did you stumble on it? I knew that, yes, I knew that it was a tomb, and I knew that it was a shaft, and I didn't understand how that happened. And it turned out that the shaft was there first, and then the monument was built and just incorporated the shaft in a new structure. A lot of Manhattan, of course, is built, human-built. Yes. But there is still a lot that you can see that shows what New York was before it was built upon. Right. A lot of the geology, the typography. Yeah. You've captured that. Especially uptown. Yeah, I think the part of Manhattan that I probably knew the least well was was far uptown, um, Inwood and, and around there. And um, I was just amazed at how much altitude I had covered up and down and up and down on a particular day, especially with the stair streets, which I loved walking what would you say you saw out there that really allowed you to get a glimpse of pre-developed Manhattan? Well, I guess being in the parks, because, I mean, lower Midtown has its its sort of uh, rolling hills that were, that were bigger probably at some point. Um, and, of course, so much of Manhattan was marshland. So Inwood Hill, I think, is the only place where where there's forest that was here before white people came. Um, Central Park is all all planted, all Olmsted. So, and to be to be there and to be able to look out on the Palisades, you think, okay, so this is what it might have looked like if you were coming up in a sailing ship in 1650 or so. 
I think a lot of us don't even give a second thought to a parking lot in New York City or even <laughs> how many parking lots there actually are yes, in New I'm, York City. I'm mostly horrified at how many there are. There are a lot of parking lots. Yes, yes. I could have done an entire book on just parking lots and parking sheds. So. What do you see in a parking lot through the lens that we're not seeing, would you say? Well, I'll admit, what I see is something I don't want to see. Um, but every structure is interesting in some way. Every arrangement is is interesting in some way. I know often when I go to another city and, and someone is taking me from the airport or taking me a drive somewhere and they'll say, I'm sorry, this is not an interesting way to go. And I say, well, it's all new, so it's all interesting to me. So there are always new things to look at. I think the parking sheds are are interesting because they all have that – well, most of them have so much of a homemade feel to them. These are the little houses yeah, that the parking right, attendants right. stay in. Yeah. I mean, I suppose there's a corporatization of that happening too, um, and they begin to look alike. But there's still a lot of them that are – they look like the person in them built them or something like that. How long ago did you do this walk around Manhattan? Uh, 2012-13. That said, how different do you think some of those streets are now? Um, well, I know my wife says, oh, yeah, he's always telling me which of those empty spaces are gone and which are not. So, And there are some that are still there and probably will be for a while. Um, I guess parking lots still make a lot of money. But there have been a lot of changes, too. And there, there, even, there are some empty spaces I looked at that I knew had been vacant for five or ten years before that that are now finally built on. There's just so much happening. What do you think your photographs tell us about the relationship between our surroundings and the way we use the city? I think we don't pay enough attention to how we use the city. Um, I think people walking the streets don't pay attention, mostly because we're buried in our phones. But... There are so many things we could be doing to make the city a more livable place for most of the people who are who are either walking or cycling. And that's been happening so much in Europe now. We're we're behind them. They're they are in the vanguard of that. Um you know, there are more and more cars taking over more and more space and and we're choking on that. So I'm I'm in favor of walking. What would you say are among the objects needed for a city to be a city. Well, certainly some of the things in the book. I didn't do some of the things that have been covered well by other people. I didn't really photograph the subway very much. I don't. I don't think New York would be would exist without the subway. Water system, wastewater, sanitation—all those pieces of infrastructure that we take for granted. That's how we got here. You know, we used to dump all of our sewage into the river and the. Um, and the bay, and it killed the oysters. And now we only dump sewage when it rains, so we need more infrastructure for combined sewers. What else do we need? I mean, we need people. We need all kinds of people, and I think that's what makes New York so interesting. Um, Do you ever photograph people? People are not in this book. I have not photographed people consciously, at all. And this is the first project where some people started to creep in and I thought, okay, that's good. I'm I'm happy with that. Because in a, in a lot of ways, this was a 
big departure for me, this project. It was, and I think part of it was walk around and carry a little camera, and part of it was, can I actually make good pictures doing that? Because you would take, I would take so much time to compose and and study a site. With the view camera, I'd take you know five or ten pictures in a day, and on a walk, I'd probably take, I don't know, two or three hundred. Probably most people would say, well, that's not that many even for a digital camera, but I was always looking. If I'm not mistaken, I think the photographs in the book that feature playgrounds are empty. The playgrounds are empty. Yeah, and I would have been... Well, some of them have kids in them and parents, and, and they probably... I would have been fine with that, but since I was mostly shooting during the day when kids were in school, they were not crowded. You referenced the subway and the importance of the subway, mm-hmm. and the subway is not in this book, but you have photographed sequences from all of the city's elevated subway tracks, correct? That's right, yeah. I, I rode every subway in both directions, sometimes twice, I would often go to the last stop so I could find a way to clean a window to shoot through. Um, Occasionally, a transit worker would say, you're not allowed to do that. Um, And then others would say, can you clean my window too? (laughs) So so I had the whole range of of experiences with that. But it was really great because it was another thing that took me to some places I hadn't been. And what, what was interesting about the sequence is that you would start... In, usually in Manhattan, but not always, and watch the density change and the types of buildings change and the types of industry change. So that you'd get out to the edges of Brooklyn and that's where the recycling would be happening or the community gardens and come back in and you'd be back with the tall buildings. For your book, Time Machines, you visited high-energy physics labs and massive telescopes being developed to study the dark matter mm-hmm. of our universe. What inspired that project? Well, I've, I've always been interested in science, and I had seen and read about the Large Hadron Collider and some of the other big physics experiments. And I thought they would be interesting places to see and and I was fascinated by the idea that experiments had to get bigger and bigger to look at smaller and smaller particles, many of which I hadn't even learned about in high school. And it was also, a, although I su- suppose we're always in an anti-science time in this country, it was a particularly anti-science time, and I thought, I want to do a project about science. Um, and I was lucky enough to get a grant from the Alpha P. Sloan Foundation so I could travel pretty much anywhere in the world that would have me. And one of the nice things about the project was that compared to the other projects where access was difficult, physicists would write to me and say, when are you coming to our lab? So it was fairly simple. Um, And I even got to go to the South Pole to do that. Wow. Yeah. What was that experience like? Well, that was with the National Science Foundation Artists and Writers in Antarctica program. Um, So they... They take care of everything for your trip. Otherwise, you would really couldn't. You can't go to most of Antarctica as a as a private citizen. So I wanted to photograph an experiment called Ice Cube, which is uh, a series of digital optical modules buried two kilometers deep in the ice at the South Pole to, met, to count neutrinos coming from the other side of the universe through the Earth 
to be detected by those. It's a tremendous amount of logistics to get there. Um, you fly to New Zealand, then to McMurdo Base in Antarctica, and then to South Pole. Um, I happened to be there on Christmas, so I got to do their round-the-world run, which was around the pole. Um, I very think it's cool. two miles in 30 <laughs> degrees below. Okay, it's still very cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but there's a great, there's a telescope there, and there's Ice Cube, and it was just an amazing place to be. What are you focusing on these days? Well, I have another project that's finished that, that I think will come out this fall or maybe next spring about the springs and wells of Manhattan and the Bronx based on a book done or, or photographs done around 1900. And I mapped out all of the sites where this man named James Will Smith visited uh, the springs and wells as they were disappearing. They were being paved over. The city was getting its new Croton water. And now there are parking lots and apartment buildings and streets and, and a few left in Central Park and Inwood Hill. And I've combined his text describing, you know, this incredible country scene with cows and frogs and things like that with, you know, concrete. So I think it'll be an interesting juxtaposition. Um, so that one is finished. And I'm starting work on a book about water infrastructure in other cities and how they're dealing with climate change. Stanley Greenberg, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Stanley Greenberg is a Brooklyn-based photographer. His latest book is called Codex New York, Typologies of the City. He's online at stanleygreenberg.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>